Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another special Ukraine war report in episode 160. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Remember the good old days when the pandemic was the nonstop number one news story in America? Well, those days seem long gone now, with our headlines dominated by the prospect of World War III and the reemerging threat of nuclear war and the defining national security challenge of a generation. So now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the death. And this is my main mission as the leader of my people, great Ukrainians. And as the leader of my nation, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the deaths. That's heroic Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. He said, strong isn't big. Strong is brave. Being the leader of the world means being the leader of peace. Being a true leader of any kind means being a leader of peace. As the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. And easy is over. Zelensky laid out a powerful challenge to President Biden, to America, to you. To all of us who care about justice, human rights, and peace. And he ended it with Slava Ukraine, which means glory to Ukraine. You may have heard it a lot lately. It's a Ukrainian national salute. It's a symbol of Ukrainian sovereignty and resistance. And it's the official salute of the armed forces of Ukraine. And it's often accompanied by the response, Heroium Slava. Glory to the heroes. This is a time for heroes and a time for glory. And the president of Ukraine is the hero for the world. And he already has the glory. But will he have the victory? The next few days will likely decide. And how much the U.S. does will likely decide. We can tip the scales, stack the deck, or sit on the sidelines. But Zelensky's speech to Congress was a heroic and historic demonstration in leadership. And he's right. This is a 9-11 moment for the world, and the U.S. must respond and answer the call. And Zelensky knows he has a real audience of one, Joe Biden. Especially with the AUMF in place, the president doesn't need to run action through Congress, unfortunately. And as we've seen in Afghanistan and so many other times before, the president can make the call. And it's time for Biden to meet the moment and truly stand with Ukraine. And Zelensky didn't just ask or beg. He challenged. Zelensky is calling us out, all of us, not just our president. With this historic address before Congress, Zelensky doubled down on asking for what he thinks his people need to be the heroes for the world, those with the glory, but also those with the victory in the end. Their fight is our fight, and their glory will be our glory in this moment if we can unleash every American resource to the people of Ukraine. So they can not only protect their country and the rest of Europe from Putin's invaders, they can defeat them. They can drive him out or into the ground 
and deliver a blow to Putin that can have him reeling, isolated, and on a much faster track into the ground himself. But they can't do it without more help. Zelensky is brave. He's capable. He's creative. But he's not superhuman. And his luck may run out. And if it does, or if it doesn't, we, all of us, can ensure that he's remembered as the victor, that the good guys were remembered as the victors, that America was remembered as the victor. But how many Ukrainians will die before that? Every day that we dither and delay, fewer Ukrainians will be alive to see it. And they are dying by the thousands. Hundreds more, maybe thousands more will die before you finish this podcast. And Zelensky called on America again to enforce a no-fly zone and to send MiG fighter jets. And our government has said they still won't. Now, that may change. But for now, today, after the standing ovation from Congress, Zelensky got a big fat no on his top requests. But he didn't leave empty-handed. He got a new injection of American firepower totaling almost $1 billion, which is a lot. But is it a lot when you consider that our overall defense budget is $768 billion? Zelensky got one-seventh of 1% of what we spend on defense. Now, it does include some weapons they badly need on the ground in Ukraine. It includes 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, 2,000 Javelins, 6,000 AT-4 anti-armor systems, 100 tactical unmanned aerial systems, drones. 100 grenade launchers, 5,000 rifles, 1,000 pistols, 400 machine guns, and 400 shotguns. Over 200 million rounds of small arms ammunition and grenade launcher and mortar rounds. 25,000 sets of body armor and 25,000 helmets. But consider for a moment that there are over 40 million people in Ukraine. So 25,000 sets of body armor and helmets are going to have to be shared pretty damn extensively. And they won't stop bombs and missiles. Now, the 800 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles might help. But 400 shotguns doesn't sound like so many when you consider there are 2 million people that live inside Kiev. So what we sent today was helpful, but not nearly enough. So we've got to continue the pressure. It's one kind of courage that every single one of us can show. Because for Ukraine and for America, easy is over. And like never, ever before, stakes is high. Because as Zelensky powerfully put before us, strong isn't big, strong is brave. And we need to not just be strong, but be brave now and likely for a long time. Be brave like the Ukrainians. Today in Mariupol, the Russians bombed a giant theater full of civilians. It's a drama theater that the Ukrainians call the Drom. It was marked with giant letters that could be seen from the air that said kids in Russian. It said kids on the outside. It was a message to Russian bomber crews that there were kids inside. And they bombed the building to ashes. They destroyed it. They killed the people inside. And that's what's happening all across Ukraine right now as you hear my voice. Children are dying in Mariupol and fleeing Ukraine by the millions. As we back here in America watch our March Madness tournament and go to St. Patty's Day parades and follow celebrity squabbles between Pete Davidson and Kanye, and we think giving them 400 shotguns is enough? It's not. Their children are dying. And leadership is not just about being big. It's about being brave. And today... Zelensky again showed Americans what it's like to be truly brave. And the Ukrainians are showing America what it's like to be truly brave every single day. And they're also showing us what it's like to be truly American, like America used to be, and like America can be again. 
if we rise to this moment, like many of our fellow countrymen already have and continue to do. Like the American humanitarian workers who are on the border in Poland right now helping child refugees. Or my friend, a combat vet, who's inside Liev right now and may join us on a future podcast. Or like the doctors who've emailed me asking me if they can go inside to help and do surgery. To the journalists on the ground, risking life and limb to show us the truth. We flip channels watching Squid Game or Yellowstone. So many journalists have bravely, courageously answered the call. Journalists like my friend, Brent Renaud. I've been covering the war since before it started, but this weekend, it got very personal for me. This weekend, Putin's army killed my friend. I'd spent the weekend in the city. I had some meetings. I went to see my best friend's baby. I got a steak dinner. And I walked around the city a lot. New York has changed a lot. And I walked about 20,000 steps on Friday all across New York City. And I walked to Federal Hall down on Wall Street, the spot where President George Washington was sworn in as our very first president. And I wondered, what would he do right now? Thankfully, France answered his calls for help when he was courageous. And we have our country today. But who will answer Zelensky's call now? I thought about it a lot over the weekend, about how precarious things were in the world. And I probably thought about it a lot more because I wasn't with my family. And I got home Saturday night after another snowstorm. And I woke up the next morning and scrolled through social media. And I found out that Putin had killed my friend. Brent Renaud was a brilliant, courageous, kind person. He told the stories of the forgotten ones, and especially the stories of American veterans. He and his brother Craig are two of the best filmmakers and nicest guys I've known. They did films like Off to War, Warrior Champions, Taking the Hill, and all his other projects bravely told our stories and will live on forever. He did Dope Sick Love about drug addiction and it's amazing and one of the best docs I've ever seen. They did Last Chance High and told the stories of Chicago kids that everybody else forgot. And Brent Renaud was fatally shot in Irpine, a suburb of Kiev, on Sunday. He was 50 years old. We worked on a bunch of projects together, and he generously shot film when I was the CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And when I needed someone to capture our historic commander-in-chief for him, in 2016 with Trump and Clinton. Brent was the guy I called. Brent was always up for the moment. He was always up for history. And he was always dedicated to his community. He and his brother boldly founded the Little Rock Film Festival in Arkansas, which was awesome. I had the honor of speaking at the very first one. And I'll always remember seeing Brent's dedication to young kids from Arkansas who wanted to make films. He showed them what was possible. Brent was a very special guy who was killed doing what he loved and what he was great at. And my deepest condolences go out especially to his brother Craig and all his friends and family around the world. Me and countless other veterans nationwide especially salute him, mourn him, and are forever thankful for his leadership. Please celebrate Brent Renault's life. It's maybe his most incredible story. Watch his films and all his other works. Putin has taken so many lives. All of them are incalculable losses. And this one was an especially good man who was also my friend. The badge that Brent was wearing when he was killed by Putin's forces said peacekeeper on it. On the top of his ID, in bold letters, it said peacekeeper. Brent Renaud was a peacekeeper. His urgent works promoted understanding and promoted peace. He was a master storyteller. He was a great American. He was a role model and he was a helper. His death is such a tremendous, tragic loss for the world, but his life will forever be an inspiration. Brent Renaud was a hero. Brent Renaud was my friend. His life is over 
but his legacy will live forever. And that is his well-earned glory. Like Zelensky says, being a leader means being a peacemaker. And Brent was a peacemaker. He was the first of my friends to die in Ukraine, but I doubt he'll be the last. This weekend, I created a list in my phone titled Friends in Ukraine. I have half a dozen names on it already, and it's going to grow fast. And one is already dead. But they're heroes all. Easy is over. There are only hard choices left now. And we've talked about that since the war began. Wartime is here, not just for Ukraine, but for everyone who cares about freedom, liberty, humanity, and peace. And now, more than any time in our lifetime, now is a time to stay vigilant. And it's a time to fight and support in whatever way we can. So we're going to continue to focus this show on it until further notice. Like never before, we're going to talk to analysts, politicians, fighters, and true leaders, peacemakers. And we're going to support Ukraine in anywhere we can. So here on Independent Americans, I'll continue to bring you Ukraine War Reports. I've talked to a number of friends who are on the ground in Ukraine. I hope to bring you their stories in the weeks to come. You'll hear from them directly. And we'll increase and intensify our focus on national security, military ops, and foreign policy to bring you more independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, be a peacemaker, and stay vigilant. Easy is over, and only hard choices remain, especially for America. And these choices will require action. And President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine are showing us what action and heroism looks like. And they're also reminding us of our own history, reminding us that this used to be a place of citizen soldiers, a place where everyone had a place in the fight. Like the greatest generation of the last World War understood. And like our guest in this episode understands now. He's a student of history and a part of history, a man who's shot and been shot at in defense of our nation and a man who's returned to educate and teach others the lessons of that time in combat. He's a true warrior scholar, a combat infantryman with a PhD, a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. He's back. Dr. Jason Dempsey. Dr. Jason Dempsey is back. He is a badass warrior scholar, a former Army infantryman with a PhD in politics. He's a professor, an author, a combat vet, and one of the country's foremost experts on civil military relations. He's a graduate of West Point, and he's an adjunct senior fellow at the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American Security. He's a man of war and a man of peace. He served as an infantry officer and deployed twice to Afghanistan and once to Iraq. He's a graduate of the Army's Command and General Staff College and an honor graduate of the Amphibious Warfare School of the United States Marine Corps. He's had assignments with the 82nd Airborne, the 75th Ranger Regiment, and the 3rd Infantry Division, my old unit. He's a man of war, but he's also a man of peace. He volunteered for deployment to Iraq, where he traveled between Baghdad and Kirkuk, working with the State Department and military personnel to draft and coordinate policies toward Kirkuk and the reconciliation of conflict from the displacement of the Kurdish and Shiite populations in northern Iraq. And he spent three years teaching civil military relations and American politics at West Point's renowned Department of Social Sciences. He joined us a year ago for episode 95, right after the insurrection and way back in episode 76 in September of 2020, when he predicted that if Trump lost, he probably wouldn't go quietly. Jason's been there and done that and predicted history before it's unfolded. He's a dad, a lover of good beer, and a no-bullshit guy who pulls no punches. He's a leader who sent soldiers into fire and seen modern war from the street level. He breaks down weapons and tactics in Ukraine. He evaluates the decisions of the leaders driving them. And he's going to share why he thinks some of the American vets going to Ukraine might not be the best thing ever. He's back for another quick fire, no bullshit lesson on Ukraine, politics, and war in 2022 
with a prediction for how this will all end. Strong isn't big. Strong is brave. And Jason Dempsey's pretty damn brave. And this song is brave. This song, Zombie, is a song about war. An epic song about war. If you don't know, it's a protest song from 1994 by the legendary Irish rock band, The Cranberries. And it was written by the band's lead singer, Dolores O'Riordan, in memory of two kids that were killed in war. Jonathan Ball and Tim Perry. During a time called The Troubles, the 30 years of war that were not called war from the 1960s to the 1990s in Northern Ireland, over 3,500 people died and tens of thousands were injured in decades of brutal conflict. And the IRA, which was dedicated to removing British forces from Northern Ireland, killed almost 2,000 people during that time. There were over 10,000 bomb attacks in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and England. And Zombie was written in response to the death of Jonathan Ball, age three, and Tim Perry, age 12. They'd been killed in an IRA bombing in Warrington in Northwest England, when two bombs hidden in a garbage can were detonated. Jonathan, age three, died at the scene of the bombing as a result of shrapnel-inflicted injuries. And five days later, Tim Perry died from head injuries. He died in his father's arms in a hospital. The two boys were out shopping to buy Mother's Day cards. Zombie is a song about pain, about war, about anger, and about courage, and it never gets old. It's painfully relevant for our times yet again. These are terrible times, especially for the children involved, but these are also times of epic bravery. But it's not just a time to watch Ukrainians be brave. It's a time for us to be brave, too. This is not a reality TV show. This is our world and the future of it. Being a leader of that world means being a leader of peace. But there's a long fight ahead before we can get to any peace. So welcome to Ukraine 1776. Welcome to the world's new 9-11. Welcome to a pivotal few days that will shape the future of our planet. Welcome to the war before the peace. Welcome to another Ukraine war report. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 160. gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. The war in Ukraine is continuing to unfold, and I want to continue to bring you guests who can add light to contrast, the heat, insight, experience, perspective. Uh, And over the last couple of days, there's somebody who I've really wanted to bring back, uh, a returning champion, a guy who I think has tremendous insights on everything from foreign policy to patriotism to combat to fatherhood. Uh, My friend, the great and powerful Dr. Jason Dempsey returns to Independent Americans. Welcome back, sir. Hey, man, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for continuing these uh, conversations. Even I'll even forgive the hyperbole. <laughs> well, you know what, man? I think it's it's time for us to try to elevate voices that can pierce some of this stuff. Um, you know, you, you are one of the most thoughtful guys I know about these things that we're talking about. So I want to just thorny issues. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you and I both got dressed up for this. You know, if folks are watching. I pulled out. I'm wearing team colors. I'm wearing team Ukraine colors from now on. And you kind of look like you're you're dressed from the Zelensky wardrobe. <laughs> You've got the, the combat looking shirt on there. It's uh, me and my crone trying to trying to get some of that reflected glory. Yeah. So uh, I ask everybody, but where are you? And it's been about a year. You were on uh, last year, January 2021, episode 95. I recommend folks go back there. But uh, Jason, where are you and how are you? I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, doing well, right? No complaints in a messed up, curvy world, uh, healthy, happy, employed, 
health, you know, nobody's sick. So we're doing, and we're not at war uh, directly. So counter blessings. Yeah. It's good perspective. I mentioned to you, we might have to interrupt this because my three-year-old is sick and sleeping right now. Um, and I'm trying not to complain because mm-hmm. there's people in bunkers with three-year-olds who are sick right now with bombs getting <clears> dropped <throat> on them. Right. So that's a powerful yeah. perspective inducer, but let me ask you, man, you're great at the big picture and the historical perspective. Uh, Zelensky just gave, you know, a historic, powerful address to Congress today. We're recording this on, on Wednesday. Uh, where are we? What is this moment in American history? What is this moment for the world? What is this moment for the guts of America? Last time we spoke to you, it was a gut check moment right after January 6th and the insurrection. Mm-hmm. But where are we right now, Jason? Well, this is a heck of a moment. And what's in, most interesting, interesting to me is this is a shakeout moment for America. And if you just think about where we were three, even three weeks ago, let alone you know a year ago, let alone five years ago, right? if you look at everything that's happened in terms of kind of a recentering, uh, you know, and just to start on the domestic side of this, right? We had a few years ago, a bunch of Republican leaders who decided the best way to celebrate America's independence was by going to Moscow and giving their fealty to Putin, right? This is, that's no longer the case, right? Three weeks ago, we had several congressmen uh, at a white nationalist rally where everybody was cheering on Putin, right? They were cheering for Putin three weeks ago. We had members of Congress sitting at a white nationalist rally, uh, listening to that and participating in that. And we've been, had this dalliance with right-wing authoritarian regimes as represented by Putin going on for a long time. We've all seen the shirts, right? I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. Mm. Uh, So this is really kind of a put up or shut up moment for the authoritarian strand of American politics in terms of this is what you get. These are the people you're pledging fealty to. uh, And that being beholden or enamored by a strongman is antithetical to everything that we believe uh, we stand for, right? It goes against the founding. It goes against our principles, uh, you might think you love a strong man in the short term, but that's not the way uh, you get a coherent, vibrant, healthy democracy. So we're definitely in a moment, both domestically and we can talk, you know, there's huge shifts happening internationally as well. So building on, on that, Jason, um, there's some debate right now about whether or not we are already at war with Russia. Mm-hmm whether this is already World War III, whether it started years ago when Putin mm-hmm. um, you know, started with the fuckery on everything from invading foreign lands to cyber attacks and meddling with our election. You're an expert on war, and we've been talking on the show about kind of redefining what war is. We're redefining a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. We're redefining what alliances look like, maybe what NATO looks like. Uh, is it time to redefine how we consider war? And are we at war with Russia already? Well, I think we just have to be careful with the way we talk about these things, right? Because one, you and I can say, yeah, we're probably at war, right? We want, we don't want to, we want to limit Putin's uh, appeal. We want to limit his power. We want to keep him contained. And we can talk, we can use war terms. But we also have to recognize that we've got systems whereby war, there's a very legal definition of war. It requires a declaration. and it's typically something that, again, going all the way back to the founding, that the founding fathers are built in these systems to say, this is not something we take lightly, right? The step fully into war needs to be something very deliberate, very conscious. And so that doesn't mean we're not in a contest of wills with Vladimir Putin. That doesn't mean we're not bringing a whole ton of assets to bear to hurt him, whether it's economic sanctions, whether it's isolation, uh, you know, even if it's, you know, the power of public opinion worldwide, we're we're bringing all that to bear to undercut his authority. We're doing everything short of United States forces engaging Russia directly. And I think we need to, and when we take it out of just me and you talking about, hey, are we at war with Putin? Yeah, sure. Let's, you know, let's take it to that guy to this question of, is the United States at war with Russia directly? That's a big move. It's a huge move. And it's something that we have to think about. Uh, and it's something that we really need to take seriously. And I think one of the traps that a lot of us fall into, and I'm as guilty as anyone, 
you know, we look back over the last 20 years of warfare, we had this AUMF put in place post 9-11 that was extrapolated to anything and everything, right? We think we don't like what's going on in Libya. Well, let's let's bomb some folks, right? We don't think things are going well in Syria. We want to get involved. We want to push stuff over to Yemen. Uh, And many of us looked at that with a little bit of horror and said, well, wait a minute. If we've given the president of the United States this much power and he is able to lead us into these conflicts by just raising the specter of a threat, uh, that can be problematic. And so now the caution we all have to take is even if we think that, hey, this is a righteous cause, these are people we need to fight against. We have to say, well, what does that mean? And are we going to force what we think is the right process? before the United States of America goes to war. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a wild trap for a president to be in, right? It's an advantage and it's also a trap because Mitch McConnell can say, well, I don't think he's doing enough. It's like, hi, right, Mitch, what else should he do, right? Are you willing to say right now, Mitch could hold a vote tomorrow on whether or not he thought the United States should go to war with Russia, right? He could put forward a bill and say, we are declaring war. He won't do it. Right? And that's not to say I disagree with him. You know, I actually think that we need to be really careful about that legal step into war. Uh, And frankly, I think what we're getting right now, uh, there's an analogy I'll get to in a second, but Putin has overextended himself, shown himself to be a paper tiger, ruined his credibility, whatever he had on the world stage, uh, and is engineering many things that have set him back by decades. He wants a superpower engagement. He wants this to be a fight between two titans because he wants to be a titan. Uh, but in this sense, in this instance, uh, I think the administration is actually playing it fairly well mm-hmm. in that he's hanging himself. Uh, he's being proven. Uh, he's isolating himself. He's hurting hurting his own cause. He's beginning getting weaker by the day. Uh, and so I am not at the point yet where I think we need to declare war on Russia. And I don't want to give him the respect that a declaration of war would entail because we're not threatened by him at the moment. I think that that that's turning on its head in a powerful way, right? Basically what you said is don't shoot down at trolls, right? And, and, and uh, anybody who's, you know, dunked on somebody on Twitter with four, 40 people can relate <laughs> to this, right? Um, and I, I haven't heard it articulated that way, Jason, frankly, especially by, by Democrats. I think there's this fear of nukes. There's a fear of a broad, broader war. Uh, there is a fear of American casualties. And we actually asked Adam Kinzinger on the show last last episode, would you vote to declare war? Will anybody bring forward uh, articles of, of, of war, right? Because we have had the AUMF in place for 20 plus years and never stopped anybody before. You and I went to things that were not technically wars, right? So I guess th- there's a bigger question here, which is, um, what is America's red line? Right. And can we be counted on? Right. Mm-hmm. If 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 it is uh, if it is a Putin's, you know, the old saying, let, don't let the enemy control the tempo. If, if Putin does fire across a border, if he does extend beyond what the U.S. is ready for, it seems like that's where things are mushy. Right. It's, it seems yeah. like we're not the no fly zone, I guess, has become the new dividing line. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and maybe there will be others. But I guess the question I want to ask you is. Do you feel like America has lost its edge? Do you feel like America will no longer be counted on to spill American blood? Kinzinger made the point last week that uh, you can't treat the military like a fragile little kitten, right? There are times when you need to use it and we should try to use it as much as we can to this point. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your view on, on that? I would take the opposite. Please. Right? Um, and I, I understand his point. You know, it goes back to the old... Uh, Madeleine Albright quote to Powell about, you know, why do we have this military if we don't use it? I would submit that, that it's it's there's a true dilemma inherent in there. It's not just a simple, oh, you got a great military, don't be afraid to use it. Because what we have also seen, a belief in the all-powerful might of the United States military to do things it's not designed to do and to be the magic bullet that solves all world problems, right? That, hey, we don't understand anything about this culture. Things seem to go going sideways. We don't like these people. Send in the military. They'll knock some shit out. Uh, and then miraculously, democracy will flourish. Right? The, the analogy I'd want to give here and what I get at is, 
we're all hanging out in a bar, right? And there's a bully in the bar and he's picking on somebody right? in a really bad way. And a lot of us don't really like it, but the dude also has a gun in his waistband. Right? And we like to think of, you know, this kind of Jason Bourne dynamic. Well, I'm just going to come in. I'm going to disarm him cleanly. I'm going to punch him in the face, uh, knock him out. Right? And then everybody's going to cheer. And the reality is, you know, think back to three, four weeks ago when we think about the international stage, right? Not everybody thought he was the worst thing on earth, right? A lot of guys are hanging out at the bar like, yeah, this guy's a jerk, but he buys me beer or, hey, you know, I'm dating his sister. So, you know, I don't like what he's doing right now, but because I'm dating his sister, right? I'm going to stay out of this, right? I want to keep it cool with this guy. And so, you know, with this, this idea that we could, again, come in and Jason Bourne the situation and take this guy out and that suddenly everything's going to be cool. One, there's two issues with that. I'll get to the decapitation issue next. But the first issue is how does that seem by the rest of the world? Right? If this thing is just starting a fight, starting to break out, most people aren't paying attention. We roll in and just knock the shit out of somebody. Half the bars will be like, who's that jerk who just knocked out that other guy? And or, hey, man, I'm glad that guy just knocked him out. Uh, but, hey, I'm going to still be hoping to get free beer from this other guy because he didn't see me as going against him. Now, look what Germany just look at what's happened with Germany and all the European communities. We've been complaining about Europeans taking responsibility for their own security for decades and letting Putin show his ass and play out like this. We've got Germany doing a complete 360. It's like, yeah, we've been dependent on oil and gas forever, but now we're actually willing to say, okay, it's not worth it, right? Getting free beer from this guy is just not worth hanging out with this guy. And oh, by the way, now we're going to take some responsibility for our own defense. And so now instead of it just us kind of parachuting in and taking something out, now we have a cohort. We have some unanimity among this crowd that says, yep, let's all work together and isolate this guy. Let's show him this isn't how you act. While also treading that fine line up, you know, he still has a gun in his waistband. He could still pull it. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't feel awesome that we're not able to just give him a knockout punch and walk away into the credits. But, hey, we've prevented the chance that someone else, us or someone else in the bar might get shot needlessly. Can, can I can I I love this construct, right? I think this is genius and we need to explore these these comparisons but is it not also a situation where the guy is in the bar he's destroying the bar he's reached behind the bar he's beating the bartender he's beating the family he's beating the dishwasher and we have a ring of people around him keeping him in that space right so the question becomes how long do you think america will let this go on today we've got a a theater bombed we're gonna see you know what we're gonna see we're gonna see children we're gonna see lots of civilians dead we might see hundreds of thousands of civilians dead do you think america and the let's just talk about america because Mm -hmm. you're great at, at america right you're almost you're an expert on america do you think america will keep that circle with all our friends, as this dude continues to beat children into the ground in the bar with a gun and shoot them and kill them and look for more. Oh, there's a line. You know, and I think what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing a slow ratcheting up of pressure. And, you know, what the, the pleasant surprise of all this is he's not winning the fight, clearly. You know, maybe he'll be able to overwhelm eventually. Um, but, you know, I think the kid he was trying to pick on is standing up pretty well. Right. Which even better further undercuts uh, and increases. Right. It, it lays bare the idea this guy is a bully and he's weak. And the more that happens as well, the more he's undercut at home. Right. The more he's got to figure out, hey, maybe I can't continue to bully my way through power. Uh, and again, his messianic complex, right, the, the way you, know, you always unify in the face of external enemies. And whether we like it or not, and we certainly don't agree with it, right, his framing, and unfortunately, too high number of Americans bought into his speech, outlining all of his grievances. They took it hook, line, and sinker, like, yeah, this guy has a valid case. Uh, We have to reject that. But by the same token, we have to understand that many of the people around him and working with him fully believe that. Mm. And but now it's being exposed, right? He's not the strongest guy around. 
he doesn't run a super competent military. He's got a lot of shiny toys that he's let uh, corrode, corrupt, and devolve. Uh, people have clearly been robbing him blind in terms of the money that the Russian government has spent, both on its military and in its intelligence efforts. People have clearly taken money out of that and put it in their own pockets. So there's a reckoning to take place within there. Uh, and I'll also go back to you know the decapitation side of this. Uh, we always think that if you if you take out the bully or the head of state, right? If we just kill Saddam, uh, if we just take out bin Laden, if we just take out Putin, that clearly what's waiting in the wings is uh, a vibrant and healthy and constructive democracy. <laughs> it's never the case, right? We've you'd think we'd learn that year after year after year. So, yep, this guy's horrible. Uh, but can I, can I turn that on its head a little bit though and ask and ask yeah. you? Trump's gone, mm-hmm. and 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 things are a lot better. Right. And and maybe Trump is more like Putin than 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 Putin is like Saddam or someone else. Like, sure, you and I both wish that this was how we approached Iraq instead of sending us in there with our buddies to to fight and die. I wonder if 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 it is better without him. And and the question really becomes, how does this end? I think there seems to be this naivete that Putin's going to come to the table and sit down and go. I don't I don't know if that's going to happen. I feel like he's going to go as far as he can until he either runs out of gas, he dies or he stopped. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and what I really want to ask you to, to dig into, because your perspective is so unique. You understand the tactical components. You understand the strategic components on the ground. You've been a military officer. You teach this stuff. What do you see in the fight? You know, you're kind of like if you're a retired quarterback, I'm going to ask you to be Tony, Tony Romo for a second. What do you see on the battlefield that maybe generals who are dominating this conversation don't see? What what should people look at that maybe you see and, and they don't see? Can you help us look at the actual combat that mm-hmm. we're seeing and what jumps out at you as most important or maybe most underreported? Well, the two dynamics are uh, military competence and then the will to fight and the narrative on both sides. We have made the mistake before of misreading the narratives of the countries we fight in. Uh, You know, it's not a direct comparison, but the fact that we lost the messaging battle to the Taliban year after year, um, you know, we can't get on our high horse. You know, we can certainly celebrate the fact that Putin misread the Ukrainian people. Uh, but we can't get too much on our high horse because uh, we have to recognize that we haven't always read the populations of the countries we've invaded either. Uh, uh, so we have to. So that's one dynamic that we should be very familiar with. Right. He miscalculated. He believed his own internal narrative, his own stories. And this is, again, where the billions of dollars that he was paying his intel services to find local partisans who would rise up and help take over Ukraine. Uh, all the prep time spent talking about Nazis. Uh, I think he really was very much in his own bubble. And if there's, you know, there's probably no more common mistake that superpowers make, right? It's that idea of like, hey, we believe our own stuff, and that's great. We should. I this believe is, this is this is Iraq. We will be greeted like liberators. Yeah. And I believe in the American narrative. I believe that we're a force for freedom and good. Uh, but what I've learned both in Iraq and Afghanistan is that not only it's not just a question of whether people also believe our narrative, a lot of them haven't even heard it. Mm. Right? Mm. They're looking at a completely different set of facts, figures, historical precedents and narratives. Right? They haven't even heard the story of the American founding. They don't know what we're all about when we touch these things. Uh, and so we have to be careful. And that's so that's one of the mistakes. That's the, the biggest mistake that Putin made was convincing himself that this flimsy justification that, hey, this is all part of Russia, they're going to love us. That's one. The second one where we have not made the same mistake is obviously military competence. Uh, And there's, you know, for as much as I will uh, admit the failings of the American military of the last 20 years uh, in terms of our inability to adapt to the fights we were in, um, you know, the American military does train these complex operations to a fairly large degree. In fact, I'd submit that we we did that for 20 years at the expense of understanding the wars we were in. That aside, what has happened with Russia and the way the, 
I think the reason a lot of us are surprised is because we evaluate our military and foreign militaries on the shiny objects. Mm. Like, look at that jet. That is an awesome jet. It can do so many things. Right. But holy shit, you know, hard it is to keep a jet in the air, right? We know, right? And so the Russian military is great at sending two jets to an air show. And everybody's like, man, that is some high tech state of our stuff. But now can those jets actually work uh, with a battle group on the ground? And can they communicate with the tanker on the ground? who's trying to maneuver and who's also communicating with your friendly air defense assets to not shoot at the wrong airplane. Are you talking to the artillery to make sure they're clearing the skies? Uh, and here's where this paper tiger of, I have a bunch of shiny objects, but I've never had the wherewithal to actually put money or training into the people operating these things. Mm -hmm. You cannot do a complex battle with the bulk of your force being made up of one-year conscripts. You just can't. It's barely enough time to learn how to shoot your own weapon and maybe operate in the squad. It tells you nothing about how do you actually navigate and coordinate all these really cool, shiny objects that are just that. Yeah. yeah. Even in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a secure net, right? Like we're hearing Ukrainians talking to these guys on wide open nets yeah. where, where, where you've also got on the other side – you know, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, but but battle tested Ukrainians who've been fighting the Russians in the east for uh, since, what, 2008. Right. They, that's that is a built into a culture and a generation. And it kind of takes me to mm -hmm. the question I want to ask you, because you're the right guy. You're a student of the American Revolution. I'm looking behind you at the history on your wall for folks who want to watch this on video. A lot of our friends are there now or a number of our friends mm -hmm. are there now. You know, a number of our friends are on their way or trying mm -hmm. to research it now, veterans and also just people who consider themselves um, soldiers in the good fight. Right? Yeah. Many of them consider this the good fight. I feel a tug. I don't know if you mm -hmm. do or not. Can, can you break down? What do you think about that? I mean, somebody, some folks have said this is 1776 for Ukraine. Right. And, and friends of ours are there now on their way. There will be more. Uh, and, and the propaganda value there on both sides is tremendous. Mm -hmm. if, if the Russians kill one of our friends or if Zelensky makes him his new bodyguard, either way, this could pull us in deeper in the same way the passing of my yeah. friend Brent Renault did a couple of days ago. Can, can you yeah. talk about this component I think and, it's, and how it's it might be unique? I think it's anything we've faced? I, yeah, it's problematic, right? I mean, it's, you know, I understand the tug. Um, I think there's a little bit of fantasy projection on a lot of folks, you know, running over there thinking, well, hey, this is my chance to get after it, right? And getting after it in a conventional fight is much different than, you know, doing a raid off of a fob, um, you know, and coming back to hot chow. Um, you know, I've seen reports of some volunteer units kind of disintegrating, right? Faced with Russian bombardment and you're seeing tanks coming down the road for the first time. Uh, that's something a lot of American veterans haven't faced. Um, you know, I'm also, there's always that dynamic of post-Vietnam, uh, war tourism, uh, you know, and the kind of the mercenary class. And I am concerned on the mental health component of how many folks who, again, it's not just a tug for righteousness, but it's a, it's a deep desire and a missing, it's a void that's seeking meaning through military engagement, even if they might not even be able to explain or understand this larger conflict. Uh, so I feel for some of them, because I don't, I'm not sure they're going necessarily for righteous reasons, but out of, uh, you know, you know, I'm not going to get into the psyche of, you know, everybody going uh, on the tactical side. It's tough as well. Um, yeah. Cause I can see the consternation among some Ukrainian forces when some American shows up and it's like, Hey, I was, you know, let me tell you about all the raids I did in Afghanistan. He's like, shut up fill some sandbags, you know, I'll give you a rifle three days from now after right. you've proven you, you know, you're just not some idiot uh, and that you're willing to fill sandbags. Um, that said, right. I don't mean to denigrate everybody who's going over there, you know, and I respect those who are making that decision for the most part, uh, but we gotta be careful. Um, you know, if the Russians capture them and, now we're in a super hard spot, right? You're, you're kind of forcing the hand of the American government in ways that, you know, we act as a nation. We, we only give the authority for military force to certain people because that's how we 
control it from becoming a free for all. You know, I might think that, hey, it's a righteous fight to overthrow a dictator in Venezuela. Uh, but that puts the U.S. government in a really tough position if a bunch of cowboys arm themselves yeah. and go down to Venezuela and, you know, are wearing U.S. military uniforms and using U.S. military type kit to try to do something. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Every, everybody over there now is kind of Prince Harry, right, in the combat zone, right? I mean, from a propaganda standpoint, from, from, a, from a PR yeah. value, right, and, and could go either way. And Pat Tillman, I kept saying, who's going to be the first Pat Tillman, right? right. Um, it could be a journalist. It could be, you know, it could be somebody that we don't even know is there. But I think that the dynamism of it is is kind of a fascinating component from a, from a hearts and minds perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I'm getting at is I don't know how Americans are going to react when a couple of SEALs get killed. Right. Yeah. And they're all over TV and we know their names and we their, their wives or husbands are on TV. Right. And and all this comes out. And let, so let me ask you maybe a final question, because I know your time is short and um, I don't know when my sick baby is going to wake back up again, <laughs> but let me ask you a final question. What's next. I always want to tell people not just what's happening, but what's next. I know you can't predict the future, mm-hmm. but you're, you're smart about these things. Yeah. Where do you see this going in the next couple of weeks? Can the U S stay out of it? Or is there a way that we somehow get dragged into it? Um, I think we're in it in a very productive way. You know, I, I honestly, I think, for all the mismanagement and missteps we took, both in the execution of Afghanistan and in withdrawal, particularly, uh, I think this administration is kind of built for this thing. And it shows the power of diplomacy and all this really hard backroom work that gets the Germans say, yep, we're we're on the side We're we're willing to uh, rearm, refit. Um, it gets all these countries aligned to truly isolate this regime in a way that's very painful. So, you know, I think, um, you know, there's some negotiations ongoing. I just, right before we got on here, I saw some headlines about a latest draft, potentially Uh, there will be a negotiated settlement of some kind, right? And I think it's been proven you can't take the whole country. We're not going to like that negotiated settlement. It's going to involve uh, over Russian control of, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, some places, you know, he's had, you know, over the last five years, maybe slightly more, we're not going to like it. Uh, but I think what we have to say is, okay, he got that while completely destroying his military, ruining his international credibility and bankrupting his own economy. And so, yeah. So that's how you think it ends. You think it ends with a negotiated settlement, Putin's still in power, the Ukrainians keep some part of their country. Then you have occupied Ukraine and free Ukraine. Yeah. And then what do we do? We put up a wall and, and dance around yeah. each other until Putin dies? Slowly strangle him, uh, you know, keep him in his box. I think he made it very clear. NATO is stronger now than it was certainly three weeks ago, let alone five years ago. Uh, and so, you know, I think he knows where his box is now. He wanted this. He got just a little bit. Uh, but he paid so much more for it than I think he was prepared to spend. But he's going to, you know, you're a betting man, or maybe you're not. He's going to live to fight another day. Yeah. Right? And and that and that's going to be the Saddam comparisons are going to come around again. And all the other comparisons are going to come around. And he's he is a, a survivor. But I think that that. There is a need for quick closure in the United States, especially Mm -hmm. need for it to be clean. But I mean, you and I have talked about this. It's going to be messy in the world for a long time. And this is where it goes back to a great phrase I heard once. So the problem with Americans is they look at the world as problems to be solved, whereas the Europeans look at the world and see dilemmas to be managed. Mm -hmm. I would love if we could just take Putin out. Uh, completely decapitate his regime, you know, you know, keep it or at the very least keep him in a small box uh, and just completely protect Ukraine under the sphere of direct American influence. That's not the way the world works. And I think we have to manage it, understand that we're better. Well, Russia, has, it, it, my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. And I think we need to continue to do everything we can within what we've done. Uh, stingers and javelins are just amazing. And I think we've massively helped them out. Uh, and at the end of the day, they're going to be, you know, this negotiated settlement is not going to be the best, uh, but it's going to be a negotiated settlement with a much weakened Russia. 
Uh, and I think we can continue to manage that. And we can continue to manage it in a way that's in our interest, you know, that prevents somebody random from getting shot. <laughs> and, you know, the guy at the bar saying, screw it, I'm pulling out my gun and taking everybody with me. Right? I think that's what we can manage. Well, if I ever have to go into a bar, I want you by my side. I'm glad you're on my side. I think it's it's a really um, compelling and powerful number of constructs and perspectives you brought to this conversation. And I think a really thoughtful, uh, not necessarily defense, but like explanation or analysis of Biden right now, which I think is 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 needed. Um, and I'm I'm grateful for your perspective. I'm grateful for your leadership. I hope next time we talk, Biden has you closer to his side than you are now. Uh, and until then, man, I, I really appreciate all that you do for this country and the insight you provide. I hope you'll come back again and, and thank you for all you do, my friend. As always, thanks for having these conversations, man. They're needed. You got okay. it, brother. Stay vigilant. All right. Jason Dempsey is the professor we all wish we had. And for today, at least, we did have him. But go on and follow him. Follow him on Twitter, read everything he writes, and call, email, or tweet at your favorite news network and tell them to book him instead of the same old generals. Jason's a next-generation leader who understands war and works for peace. He's a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. And be sure to check out the hashtag look for the helpers on Twitter and share yours. I continue to share incredible, inspiring stories on social media, and you've been sharing them too. So keep them coming. And while you're there on social, play Guest the Guest every Wednesday night. Look for the hashtag Guest the Guest. I will post a mysterious type picture where you don't know the guest and you have to guess who it is. As of recording time, we really only had one guess, and it was from our friend Delfino Sanchez, who actually got it wrong. He guessed General David Petraeus, who is not correct, but might be a future guest. Thank you, Delfino, for playing. Thank you, everybody, for playing Guess the Guest. Delfino likes to ask me football questions, too, and ask me where I see Deshaun Watson playing next year. Well... I'll tell you what, it looks like he might go to the Browns. I think it's ridiculous that the Browns are getting rid of Baker Mayfield, but that's where Deshaun Watson may end up. I know he won't be with the Giants, who picked up Tyrod Taylor, which I think is a good backup, good number two, but it ain't going to save my Giants. We got a long way to go. But thank you, Delfino, for playing. Thank you to everybody else for playing Guest to Guest. Be sure to be like Delfino. Go over to independentamericans.us. That is the website for this show. You can see video from my conversation with Jason Dempsey there. You can listen to this show on every platform. You can share it with your friends. And you can see every single conversation we've ever done on this show there. And it's linked to YouTube. And our conversation with Malcolm Nance, a recent one, has now over 10,000 views on YouTube, which is a pretty high number for us. It's fifth place overall now for this show. The number one, can you guess it? Henry Rollins by a lot. Yes, so Henry Rollins is our number one most viewed conversation on YouTube. You can find that and all others at independentamericans.us. You can also get some Independent Americans gear and support this show. Get a jump on Mother's Day. Get a jump on Father's Day. Get a jump on spring. Check out a cool Independent Americans t-shirt, hat, coffee mug. We got some good stuff. Go check it out. You can also support this show by joining our Patreon community. We need you, Patreon members. You keep us going. You are our most important sponsors. And shout out to our newest Patreon members, including Brian Rice. Welcome, Brian. Great to have you on board. Love you guys. Thank you for helping us out. And as always, please continue your support. Go to the Apple Podcast Store. Give us five stars. More people listen to podcasts on the Apple Podcast Store than any other platform. So be sure to subscribe for free and share. It's absolutely free. And Righteous will continue to bring you the five eyes in this show and all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And the amazing Righteous Media Big Three keeps it going. Creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. Thank you guys for helping us keep this going. And as always, thank you to my wife, Lori, and my two boys. Last week was the first day that my boys, age six and three, have ever been in school without a mask mandate. Think about that. It was a happy day, but it was also hard. Some kids were masked, 
Some were not, but it was kind of a mind warp for everybody. And I really left the day kind of conflicted and wishing that every kid in America could get a mental health check-in with a professional, especially this week, and every heroic staff member too. This time of change for our kids and for all of us is yet another reminder of the massive mental health support that we need across America and across the world, especially as we continue to grapple with this new phase of the pandemic and the stress of a new war. And now that we're powering to the end of the pandemic, hopefully, as with any war, when the fighting ends, the real pain begins. And we're going to start to see folks processing stuff they haven't for over two years. So let's all unite and push Washington and every institution of power to send more mental health support to everyone in this critical time. From combat vets, to teachers, to bus drivers, to kindergartners. And let's try to be especially kind to each other out there, especially to the little ones, to the little ones here, and especially the little ones inside Ukraine. The kids are not all right. None of us is all right after all this. And I've learned with war, not everyone comes home wounded, but nobody comes out unchanged, especially kids. But also, no one's more resilient. Check this out. That's a seven-year-old named Amelia who went viral around the world for singing the Frozen song Let It Go in a bomb shelter in Kiev. She's singing that inside a bomb shelter, and it's gotten over 17 million views and counting. Adina Manzel, the legendary singer and actress who sang the song in Frozen, retweeted the video and wrote a caption, We see you. We really see you. We see Amelia now. And we see all the children in Ukraine that we can, but we got to do more than just see them. We got to match their courage with our action. Amelia is one of the lucky ones. She got out and she's now safe in Poland with her grandmother and her siblings. And she showed a courage that's inspired the world. But she will need our love and support for a long time to come. All the kids will in Ukraine and here at home, all around the world. And that should be something that we can actually all unite around. America's more divided than ever. But here at Independent Americans and Righteous Media, we're working to change that, to add light, to contrast the heat of all the other political shows. And if you're among the 42% of Americans who are independent, you know this is your show. But if you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're not a diehard partisan, this is your show too. If you're a concerned American... Ukrainian, or global citizen from anywhere who cares about the future, this is your show and all are welcome. We invite you to join us and be a part of the solution. And you can do that also by checking out the other Righteous Media podcasts, which includes The Firefighters with Rob Sarah, another Righteous Media production, and I think Rob has his best episode yet. In the new episode number 17 for Women's History Month, he interviews Laura Cavanaugh, who is the Fire Department of New York's first ever acting female commissioner in the entire history of the fire department. They've never had a female commissioner until now. And Rob has an exclusive interview with her that you want to hear anywhere you get pods, or you can always go to the firefighters.us and wherever you got this one, but it's a great episode from Rob and from righteous. And I hope you can check it out. Also our newest podcast B dorm has a new episode dropping tomorrow. Check out Jericho and Don. They're going to continue to talk about news, culture, sports, race. It's a fun show that will mix up your week. It drops every other Friday and they're coming off a fresh appearance this week on Tavis Smiley's radio show on KBLA. So big thanks to Tavis for having on Don and Jericho. And don't forget, Uncle Montel, the OG of weed, will be coming later this year with new episodes. You can subscribe to all these shows for free wherever you got this pod or go to Righteous.us. Please keep sharing our content and keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy. 
It's the hope that you heard in seven-year-old Amelia's voice here and worldwide and especially inside Ukraine right now. It's that hope and that energy that will keep this movement in support of Ukraine growing and it'll keep our movement of independent Americans growing week by week. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's a price the Ukrainian people are paying right now, especially Ukrainian kids. And it's a price we in America are starting to pay a little bit with higher gas prices, which isn't even a sacrifice we made for our own war after 9-11. But we've got to go above and beyond just what our president asks of us, especially when he doesn't ask anything of us. Leadership's about sacrifice, especially in war. And nobody sacrifices in war more than the children. And everyone can do something. The pain and sacrifice of war is new every time. And painful every time. But it's also familiar. It's the same loss that haunts every generation. From Northern Ireland to Afghanistan to Kiev, Ukraine right now. Children continue to die. And the only thing that will stop the dying and stop the war is courage. Ukraine is showing us what courage looks like. President Zelensky shows us what courage looks like. We need to show more of it ourselves. And now, until further notice, we've got to find ways to fight alongside Ukraine in whatever way we can until it's over. We must stay vigilant. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together, especially now. All across America, all across Ukraine, all around the world, we're all in this together. From President Zelensky to the Cranberries, from the family of Brent Renaud to Jason Dempsey, from little seven-year-old Amelia in the bomb shelter to you. We can be true leaders. We can help make peace. But first, we have to help Ukraine win. And this is the time. Now is the time for courage. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. And stay vigilant, America. Media.